I'm separated from my family at the moment. Lindsay took the offspring and drove down to South Carolina um, to meet with her family. We're spending Thanksgiving with them 14 hours in the van down to South Carolina. I win. (laughs) She's probably watching. I just lost. Oh, well, that's whatever. That's... It is what it is. We've had a lot of road trips in that van, actually several vans, and I have a lot of things I could say about those road trips. Um, They're not the greatest, you know, uh, especially the the younger the offspring are, and it it can be a challenge, you know. Are we there yet, you know? uh, Tommy's on my side of the van. I don't have a Tommy, but you know which one it is. Uh, uh, You know... uh, uh, (laughs) Can we listen to this? 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 That's what kills me. The the constant DJ dad. I can't. I just can't. We stop, get, you know, get a a refreshment, use the restroom, gas up, pull out. Two miles later, what? Dad, I have to go to the bathroom, right? I mean, it should only be like an eight-hour drive. It ends up being 14, no. (laughs) Road trips take endurance. Most of the time when we're on these road trips, though, we're headed somewhere glorious, you know, we're going to the beach or we're going to the resort or the mountain, whatever, and we're going somewhere like that's just really great. And we're looking forward to being there. But like, so in the middle of the road trip, every once in a while, I just have to get out my phone and check that there is like a reservation. Like we are actually going somewhere good. Like, why are we in this, this van? What is happening? Oh no, I remember we're going somewhere. Like we're headed to the beach. We're headed to the vacation. We're headed to the time of rest and refreshment and enjoyment. Ah, and when I have my eye on the destination, then perhaps it helps me to uh, persevere and endure, right? Knowing the destination, it motivates patience and perseverance on those road trips, at least in theory, right? In some ways, our lives can sometimes feel like those long road trips, where they can just be wearying, if we're honest, yeah, that we hit these different bumps in the road. We have challenges, you know, delays. You know, we, we have physical trials that kind of derail us. We have economic difficulties, political circumstances change, right? Family dynamics change. You know, we, we have these seasons of life where there are ups and downs. And, and sometimes it just feels like the road trip's never going to end. And it really can wear on our souls. But when we remember where we're headed, when we know where we're going, right? We are better equipped to persevere today. That's why Revelation 21 and 22 is in the Bible. It's in the Bible just to, just to remind us. It's not the only place, but it's, it's a, a matter of emphasis here, right? That it's just to remind us, listen, what is coming for the people of God is good and glorious and eternal. We are headed to, to an epic a truly epic existence with our great God. And that fact, the fact of that destination, motivates us to be patient and to persevere today. I don't know what you're facing specifically in your life this week, but I do know that whatever it is, that this passage of Scripture is designed by God to captivate and motivate you. To captivate and motivate you. We are headed somewhere glorious, or maybe more accurately, somewhere glorious is headed for us. So as we unpack these verses, I hope that you'll be encouraged this morning by what God has for us, and it will help you follow him today. Let's get right into the details 
uh, here in chapter 21. So really, this is the tail end of this last section of visions that has run from chapter 19, verse 11. And so the, the, the terminology there, then I saw, kind of tips us off to that. And really, this is kind of the balance, the, uh, the rest of the story in contrast to Babylon that was judged. So remember, Babylon was judged, uh, sinful culture, uh, you know, united in rebellion against God. It's all going to be judged by God. But once Babylon is judged, well, what's left? Well, now we have this glorious other, the new Jerusalem, the new creation. And so that's what we read about in chapter 21, verse 1. So you can follow along there in your Bible. But there we read this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. If we pause there just with verse 1, John... He makes use of terminology from Isaiah, Isaiah 65 and 66 here. And he does so, as he does so, he describes what is our eternal destiny, our eternal home. But he calls it a new heaven and a new earth. It's new because it displaces the old. It's different than the old. There is some continuity there, but there's also some discontinuity. That there's a new work that God is doing, even in creation itself. And notice that he says, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So the idea is that God creates the universe... It's, it's tainted and tarnished by sin, broken by sin. And God, what we read in the Bible, that God is doing a work of redemption. And that work of redemption isn't limited to saving people. It actually expands to all of creation. That one day he will remove the curse from all of creation and renew this earth. It will be new. It won't necessarily be, uh, you know, that, that it's like unrecognizable, but it will be new. Crucially, sin will be the main factor that it's been removed. That's different. And we don't know much else other than that to say about it. And we'll talk about some of the details that we see in the next couple weeks. But the first heaven and first earth, they're, they're going away. And it, they will be renewed. Crucially, at the end of verse 1, though, he says, And the sea was no more. We've talked about it, but especially in the Bible, the sea stands, uh, it tends to represent or stand for chaos, uh, evil, like unexpected difficulty and challenges, Right? And that's, that was the, the ancient or eastern way of thinking about it in the Old Testament, and certainly that influences on into the new. So when, when John writes, the sea was no more, he's saying there's going to be the removal of chaos and evil. You see, in our passage this morning, we're going to learn all these details about what the new creation will be like. And the first thing we learn here in verse 1 is that the new creation will be free of chaos. The new creation will be free of chaos, no evil. No natural disasters. No risk. You think about going out on, you know, think about in pre-modern era, going out uh, on a, you know, onto, into the ocean, right? Or into the Mediterranean, massive bodies of water. And some of you won't swim in swimming pools because you're afraid of sharks. You know, imagine, you know, you're, you're trying to, you know, have to travel or do trade on, on the, you know, in the Mediterranean or in the Atlantic with, without, you know, modern equipment, technology and all of this and, and so it was scary, it was fearful. There's a lot of risk involved in going out, right, on the sea. But on the new earth, no sea, no chaos, no risk, no problem. Verse 2, he further describes what he sees. He says, I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. 
So here we have this now description of the bride of Christ, but it's described as a city coming down from heaven. Literally, the idea and the vision is you have heaven coming to earth. That's what's happening. And so this, this, this city of new, the new Jerusalem, right, it's, it's God's dwelling with his people. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But the fact is that it, the fact that it comes down from heaven means our eternal home, our eternal destiny is on this earth in resurrected bodies living with God forever. That's where we're headed. And so the idea is that, wow, the, the new Jerusalem is going to invade this creation as God renews it. And that Jerusalem is coming down and it looks good like a bride prepared for her, her husband. Now, we've already encountered this terminology in chapter 19, but the emphasis here is on the church being beautiful, blameless, and pure for her Lord. That's what God is doing in creating a people for himself. There's been some discussion about the new Jerusalem. Is it a people or is it a place? And the answer to that is yes. It's both. It's both. Here you have the, the, this, this wonderful picture of heaven invading earth and actually earth becoming what God had intended it to be. The new creation will be free of chaos. The new creation will be populated by God's people. Populated by God's people. So just think about that for a second. No risk, no chaos, no evil, which by the way, so often we try to manage risk using our own, you know, uh, strategies. Sometimes we try to manage risk by just avoiding it, by removing ourselves from risky situations, which sometimes we can do that and sometimes we can't. Most of the time we can't, right? So that's one strategy. Another strategy for mitigating risk is to just control everything and everyone. And those people are a pleasure to be around, aren't they? Right? Trying to control everything and everyone. You know, force it all into your will, right? But you still can't remove the risk because you're part of the risk, number one. And there's a lot of, of course, there's so much that we can't control, but in the new creation, we'll be free of that chaos, evil, and therefore the risk. No stress. I'm just going to say that again. No stress. None. And this new creation will be populated exclusively by God's people, the bride of Christ. Which means we are being currently prepared as his people for this wedding day. Right? We're looking forward to it being excited for it. What does it mean to be prepared? Well, it means that we are being made more holy on a daily basis. The technical term for that is sanctification, being made more holy, coming into conformity with the image of the Son. This is what God is doing in us. Crucially, when we look forward to our eternal home, we're not going to be floating around on clouds, right? It's not a disembodied experience. You know, so often we misunderstand what eternity really will look like, right? The eternity is, again, with our resurrected bodies living on earth, the new earth, with our great God forever. That's what we're looking forward to. Now, between today and that day, God is working on us. Not only has he made the way for the forgiveness of our sins, but he's also making us more holy. I wonder... You know, are you measurably more holy today than you were last week, last month? I think it's a fair question because, you know, John's writing and he's saying, here's the deal. This is where we're headed. This is what's coming to us. And the, the process of preparation, there's, there's going to be some difficulty there. There's going to be some challenges in the culture in which you live. First century Roman Empire, big challenges there. But man, the bride of Christ is, 
is present tense, being prepared for that day. I think John wants his readers to ask, am I being prepared for that day? Am I growing in holiness? We don't like that term holiness today. It's gotten a little, I don't know if it just feels too old-fashioned for the church, but man, it's a good word. Because it talks about being set apart for God's glory. And that's what makes the bride beautiful in Revelation. It's being set apart for God's glory. We found in chapter 19 that, uh, that the beautiful dress of the bride pictures the righteous deeds of the saints. Transformed lives where we live differently because we're motivated by faith in our great God and Savior. So what about you? Are you more holy? As we look forward to the new creation, this vision is meant to transform us today. Don't be afraid of the term holiness. It's a good word. And God made you to be set apart for his glory. Not just then, but even now. Now, thankfully, it won't only be us on the new creation or in the new Jerusalem. Watch verse 3. Not only does John see in this vision, here he hears. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. We'll just pause there with verse three. There's so much Old Testament crammed into this verse. We don't really have time to unpack it all, but just, just let's look at a few of the details here. God, uh, John hears God speak, and as God speaks from the throne, he proclaims God's dwelling is with humanity. The concept of God dwelling with humanity goes all the way back to creation, doesn't it? Because when God created mankind, when he created Adam and Eve, he put them in the garden to be his image bearers and to steward his, his image over the whole earth. So they are his steward kings and queens. But we find out that in the garden, they would spend time walking, and talking with the Lord. They, 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 they related to God in the garden. Of course, very quickly we find out that because of sin, that relationship is broken, right? And so then they can't be in the garden. They are actually, as a consequence of sin, they are expelled from the garden. As they're expelled, there's hope, right? That God will do this work of redemption. He makes a promise, I'm going to do this work of redeeming and undoing the curse. And the rest of the Bible is the story of how that's going to unfold. But wouldn't you know it, as you read through the Bible, you find this theme of God doing a miraculous work so that he can dwell with his people. Right? We, we get to uh, Israel being in, uh, in slavery in Egypt. And God rescues his people out of slavery in Egypt. But why does he do it? He rescues his people out of slavery in Egypt so that he can bring them to Mount Sinai, right, in the desert, in the middle of nowhere, and so that he can gather them at that mountain and he can say to them, now you are my people. I have purchased you. I have rescued you with a strong arm. I have made you my own. And so now you relate to me. And so then he gives them the law because his whole plan is for, for his uh, people to dwell with him. And he facilitates that by, by a temple, a portable temple. We call it the tabernacle, right? The tabernacle was God's house with his people. So he dwelled right in the middle of all the tribes. That was the theory. And then as they finally, he delivers them to the land, the most important city in the land was Jerusalem. 
Why? Because in Jerusalem, God said, that's where I'm going to put my footstool. That's where I'm going to put my temple. That's where my house is going to be as I dwell with you. Why? Because God's design in rescuing his people is so that he could dwell with them. Of course, then they, they continue to sin against God and idolatry. They're kicked out of the land. And then, of course, God brings them back to the land. And there's the excitement about rebuilding a temple. Why? Because, again, God saved his people so that he could dwell with them. But even in the midst of all of that, there's a recognition that eternally, eternally God will dwell with all of his people. And so in Ezekiel, for example, chapter 48, at the end of Ezekiel's last vision, actually the very end of the book, we find this focus after there's been a description of God dwelling right in the middle of his people forever. Ezekiel says, yeah, the name of that city, it's the Lord is there. The Lord is there. The new creation will be God dwelling with his people. It's interesting, though, if you look again at verse 3, it's not just people. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, says the CSB. Peoples, that's awkward to read, peoples. But it's important. Because the idea is not that it's one nation that's been rescued, but rather it's sinners from every tribe tongue, and nation that have been rescued. This is, this is absolutely crucial because God dwelling with his peoples means that the, the people of God together are not limited to one ethnicity, okay, or one tribe, or one socioeconomic status, or one uh, geopolitical national status. No, God is rescuing from every people group, from every tribe. That's abundantly clear throughout all the scriptures. And yet, man, Racism and prejudice is stubborn, isn't it, in our hearts? And here we get this reminder that this is what God is doing. This is, this is where we're headed. We're headed to a place where our place is headed to us, right? Where we will dwell with God forever. And as we dwell with God forever, we will do so with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Frankly, you know, if we think about what God is doing with the new creation, I think when we talk about it, it's it will be God dwelling with us forever, God dwelling with his people forever. I think that's the least exciting part to us sometimes. And I, John Piper, I think, said it well, and it's an important question. And I'm just going to read it because I think it's powerful. He says, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? You know, sometimes we're just so worldly when we think about our eternal home and we think oh i can't wait unlimited chipotle right and football on every day all the time and some of you are like that's not heaven that's the other place you know like that <laughs> and we, we're so we're just so worldly sometimes but the point is and i think it's reflected here in the vision what's so great about the new heaven and the new earth is that it's God's dwelling with his people. It's God dwelling with us. And the reason why we think that way, we have those, you know, 
misconceptions about what our eternal state's going to be like, and we focus on the, the worldly stuff, the reason why we have that is because we think they satisfy. But in reality, it's, it's only him who satisfies. Watch verse 4. Being with God in the new heaven and the new earth, it also includes some incredible benefits. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. The new creation, yes, it will be free of chaos. It will be populated by God's glory. It will be God's dwelling with his people, but also it will be free of suffering. That's Isaiah 25, verse 8, that John is quoting there. It will be free of suffering. No Babylon, only Jerusalem. Listen, I I cannot tell you, and and rightly, I think this is one of the aspects of our eternal state that we do look forward to. Because daily, we encounter situations where we suffer and we are hurting. But let's just be really clear. What God is bringing to earth, the work that he is doing, right? That work means we will not have any death, grief, crying, pain, no suffering, none whatsoever. It will all be gone. No regret, no failure, no sin, no hurt. I know some of us here have faced significant economic disasters in their life. But not there. Some of us have faced betrayal where a close friend or a family member has let us down, turned their back on us, even turned on us, right? But not there. Some of us have experienced and are experiencing our bodies breaking down as we get older, significant challenges with disease and sickness, but not there. Some of us endure the heartache, the loss of loved ones. But can I just encourage you this morning? Not there. That pain is removed. The sickness will be gone. There will be no concern for loss, no concern for failure, no concern for relational breakdown, betrayal, whatever. There will be no suffering in the new creation. And that is headed right for us. You know what? It's not a mistake that God gives us these passages when he knows we're going through suffering. And he gives us to us because he says, I I know that you're going through hardship. He is our good shepherd. I know you're going through a hard valley right now, but just know that this is not a dead-end road, that I'm at work in your life. And so our glorious eternal home is free of suffering, which again is designed to motivate us to trust God today. How? How does this work? Watch verse 5 as the vision continues. John writes, Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. This is so important, okay, just these two verses, because in verse 5, as John describes, again, God speaking from the throne, he says, now I am making everything new. Grammar matters. Who is making everything new? It's God speaking. 
I am the subject of that sentence, right? The word I. And so here he says, I am. I am making all things new. I am making everything new. It's not our work. It's not, it's not, the church doesn't do it on their own. We don't do it. We don't create it. It's God's work that he is doing. And because he's making everything new, we can have confidence in him in the meantime. I do like the grammar there because it's not, I will make everything new. It's, I am making everything new. It's currently happening at this moment. So he is in the process, again, of beautifying his bride and doing a work in us to prepare us for when the new Jerusalem descends. As we look forward to that, we can look forward to it without fear, like, oh man, is it going to happen? And I know some of you are Jets fans uh, here this morning, and I pray for you every day. I really do. Um, I, know, I know what you're thinking. thinking That's right, the Jets are pretty good this year. Yeah, right. No, I've heard that one before. Uh, so, because when you think about the Jets, okay, or whatever, insert sporting team there. Uh, USA starts World Cup tomorrow, right? Yeah, you know, it'll take a miracle, right? That kind of thing. We look, we look at those things, and, or those you know, sporting teams or whatever, and you look to the future success, and you're like, I don't know. A lot of things would have to go right. I mean, we'd have to, you know, we have to beat Wales, Iran, if we can get a tie with England, and then maybe if the Netherlands loses one game, we could maybe, like, you know, a lot of things have to go right in order for that to work out. I don't know. It's not likely. I don't, they're not selling Jets Super Bowl champion gear yet, right? You know, we're just, I don't know. I wouldn't just get too excited about that. Because it depends on us. Because it's our work. And our work is uncertain because we're frail and we're, we're mortal and we fail. There's sin and there's complications and the sea does exist right now. So there's chaos and things we can't control. And so those kinds of things, we go, yeah, I don't, maybe, I don't know. But when we talk about the new creation, when we talk about God dwelling with us forever, when we talk about our eternal state in renewed, resurrected bodies on a renewed earth, when we talk about that, we don't have to talk about it with a maybe, I hope it works out. No, it's not I hope it works out. It's it will work out because God is making all things new. It's his work. The new creation. The new creation is God's work and it's based on God's character. Notice the end of verse 5. He also said, right, John, right, because these words are faithful and true. These words, the words about the new creation. Why does, why, why point that out? They're faithful and true because of the one who's speaking them, right? Because God is faithful and true, his words are faithful and true. So John says, listen, or God says to John, write this down and make sure that you get it because this is my work that's based on my character. That continues into verse six. He says that he also said to me, it is done. Like in the vision, this is it, man. It's going to happen. I'm going to do it. It will be finished. And then he says, I am the alpha and omega, Remember, Alpha and Omega, the A and the Z, right? From beginning to the end. It's talking about God's eternality and his sovereignty over all of time. It's a beautiful image. We found it in chapter 1. We'll find it again in chapter 22, referring to Jesus specifically. Uh, So here's the fact. He says, I am sovereign over it all, over all of time. You can count on me to finish this work that I'm doing. The new creation, it will be God's work based on God's character. I'm the, I'm the Alpha and Omega, he says, the beginning and the end. But that's not all. Notice the end of verse 6. Yes, he's sovereign over all of time and history. 
But that sovereign one says, I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. Brothers and sisters, the new creation will be eternal satisfaction for God's people. Eternal satisfaction for God's people. We did read it in our time of singing, but it's Isaiah 55, verse 1. Or Jeremiah 2, 11 and 12, where God says he's the fountain of living waters. Or John 4, 14, where Jesus says to the Samaritan woman at the well, you know, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for living water. And I would cause a spring to rise up in you. Oh, Jesus says, you have no idea the satisfaction I can give to you. In Revelation 21, verse 6, God says, I'll give it to you forever. This is what we're all chasing. It's satisfaction. It's that, that yes, that, that peace and that fulfillment, right? We're all chasing it. But the fact is, we chase it in so many places where we can never get it. We think money will give me that satisfaction or peace. Or what money can buy me will give me that satisfaction or that peace. Or this achievement in my career, if I get that, that next degree and then I get that, that next uh, position at work and I climb the ladder, if I finally owned my own business or if I finally owned that particular property or if finally they were friends with me or if I had that house or if I had that car or if I had that spouse, well then I would finally be satisfied. But there's only one who can satisfy our thirst. And he promises to do it forever. He promises to do it forever. Why settle for something less? My friend Jonathan Edwards used to talk about how God is pictured as a fountain. And he's a fountain of goodness that overflows. And when his fountain of goodness, this fountain of goodness overflows into streams, the streams are good too. And as we encounter God's goodness and we drink from that stream, we experience the goodness of God. And because the fountain never stops flowing, the stream never stops flowing. And as we drink forever, we never stop being satisfied by the goodness of God. And Edwards, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big metaphor, but he's just trying to say, we're going to be that happy forever. We're going to be this satisfied forever because that's how good God is. That's what the new creation is for the people of God. You know, we were, we were created with this longing for satisfaction for a reason. And God promises here, I will freely give it to you. It's, that adverb freely, it's important. God says, I'm not asking you to pay for it. I'm not asking you to earn it through obedience to me. I'm going to give it to you just because I can. You can have it. Well, who can have it? Who's it for? Watch verse 7. John writes, The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The new creation is coming, 
And it will be glorious. It will be free of chaos. It will be populated by God's people. It will be God's dwelling with his people. It will be free of suffering. It will be God's work based on God's character. It will be eternal satisfaction for God's people. But it is only for God's people. So in verse 7, when he says, the one who conquers will inherit these things, he's picking up on a key phrase he's already used in Revelation. Uh, that, that, the call to conquer, to overcome. We saw it way back in the letters to the seven churches, you remember? And there's the urging, the imperative, the command in those letters to say to believers, you got to overcome. You, you need to overcome. You need to conquer. Conquer what? Conquer the temptation to give in to idolatry. Conquer the temptation to follow the crowd and give in to peer pressure. To conquer the temptation to let despair or discouragement or hardship derail your faith. Because the urgent question of the day is, will I persevere? Will I keep following Jesus when it's hard, when it's difficult, when it costs me something in the eyes of my family or my friends or my culture, when I don't want to give up what I need to give up for God and so there's this, cur- this urging, this calling, overcome, 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 conquer, conquer, conquer. And then in verse 7 here, he says, the one who conquers, that's the one who will inherit these things. I like the word inherit there, right? It will come to you by virtue of your right as being a part of God's family. That's, again, that's a, a very common image throughout the Old and New Testament. That God is... His, is adopting his people, creating his people, and being a part of God's family means, yes, we have access to these benefits. You inherit these things just because you're in the family. There's intimacy there. I will be his God and he will be my son. You think about that. You'll be the son or daughter of God. Why? Because God has done a work. And you'll benefit from being a son or a daughter of God. Why? Because of his grace and his love and his mercy. But here, as, as John has given this vision of the new creation, there's this reminder that says, listen, this isn't for every human being. It's for those who belong to me. And those who belong to God are identified as those who conquer, those who say no to temptation. This is not work salvation. He's not saying you have to do obedience to get in. He's saying my people, the people that I've saved, they are people who persevere in saying no to temptation. He's not saying you have to you have to say no to the world to earn your place in heaven. He's saying no, my people, right? The people that I have created, they are marked by this endurance where they say no to worldliness. They're not perfect just yet, but they will be. And so, in the meantime, there's an urgency, a calling to the people of God to conquer, to overcome. You see, the new creation calls for new resolve. The new creation's coming. You're not stopping it. It's coming. But that calls for a new resolve, right? A renewed desire and commitment to say, I will persevere in my faith. The new creation calls for new resolve to persevere. Conquer, overcome, do it, get after it. This day is coming, and so today we overcome. We say no to that temptation. Now, in contrast to the people of God, in verse 8, you have this list of, of attributes or the kinds of people who won't be enjoying the new creation. But I just want to highlight a couple things in this list. Notice, first of all, the first two terms there specifically relate to the difficulty of persevering in our faith. He says, but who's not going to be there? Well, but the cowards and the faithless. 
they won't be there. It's not just, he's not talking about cowardice in general, okay? Um, He's talking about those who are cowards in that they will not hold to their faith because they're afraid of what people are going to think of them. Or they will not hold to their faith because they're afraid of being imprisoned for their faith. First century Roman Empire could happen in some places, right? They're they're not going to hold to their faith because they're afraid of, of being executed as martyrs. Have you noticed how often in Revelation that the martyrs have been held up as a model, right? In these visions, the, the, the martyrs, those that give their life for the Lord, they're your heroes. They're your, they're your role models. They're, they're your example for what it looks like to endure even when it costs you your very life. The cowards and the faithless, and faithless, right? That they, they just check out. They're done. Not going to persevere. Just going to take the easier road. They're not getting in. Now, they're not the only ones. The cowards are faithless. They're not getting in. The detestable, those who participate in, in activities, in sinful activities that God hates, right? Not getting in. If that's the, the mark of their life, they're not getting in. Murderers, right? Those who hate and murder, not getting in. The sexually immoral, this is so difficult. And we're really in an awkward place in our culture because we're in such a, a sexually um, just, uh, you know, saturated culture. And, and we have this opportunity to be a witness to our culture, absolutely. But the fact is, we have to say, as we witness to the culture and we communicate the love of God for sinners, absolutely, we still have to say what God says about sexual immorality. And he says it's wrong. It's not okay to have sex with someone you're not married to. It's not okay to, to pursue sexual pleasure at any and all cost. It's not okay. And here God says the sexually immoral, they're not getting in. If that's your baseline that, yeah, I mean, that's, that's my, my function is just to be pleased sexually for the rest of my life. That's all that, that's all that matters. You're not getting in. Sorcerers and idolaters. Now, I, I'm not sure many of us are struggling with sorcery today, right? Okay, some of us are a little too into Harry Potter. That's, that, you know, that's a thing. Oh, that was a joke. Come on, people. Harry Potter. What's he talking about? Well, of course, in the first century context, you could be so into worshiping the, the Greco-Roman gods and goddesses, that you would actually get involved in you know, trying to manipulate them and get them to do what you want, which leads to what we would call sorcery, where you're like, there's a secret book and you don't have to learn these things and all that. That was a thing then. It wasn't new to the Greco-Roman culture. It was Canaanite, and even before that, there's Egyptian versions of it. So it goes way back. It's, it's just idolatry, right? But when we participate in idolatry, it's kind of like we are trying to manipulate our circumstances to get what we want. So it's kind of like sorcery. Like we feel like, oh, if I can just do this and do that, if I had this and I had that, then I'll be happy. Well, it's kind of the same game. And, you know, maybe you're not cutting open animals to look at their insides to tell your future. But I don't know. Maybe you are. Maybe you are going and basing your decisions on your uh, astrological sign, right? Or having someone read your palm to tell you your future. Not getting in. And all liars, he says. Just in case you missed any of those other ones, right? He says all liars aren't getting in. Their their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And just in case you've forgotten, who else is in that lake of fire? Well, the beast and the prophet, the false prophet are there in Revelation. And Satan's been thrown in there with all those who rebel with him. So there's your crew, right? And they'll all be there suffering eternally, being judged by God forever. 
Now, that's a stern warning, right? And it functions on two levels, okay? First of all, this is a warning for those who, who are not believers. So if you're like, ah, you know, back off, you know, the religious thing, fine, if it makes you a better person, but I'm not really into the Jesus thing, like if that's your, if that's your, your attitude, or I, how could you really be sure there is no God, whatever, all that stuff, this is a warning that says, hold on a second. If you, if you reject Christ, and you live what our world would say is a moderately moral existence, you're not getting in. Because we all struggle with deception. We all struggle with sexual temptations. We all struggle with idolatry. We all struggle with hatred that could lead to murder if you catch us on the wrong day, right? And so he's saying, if if that's you, and you haven't trusted in Christ, you're not getting in. And I would just encourage you, if that's you this morning, I would encourage you that you're still drawing breath. You still have an opportunity to repent of your sins. And praise God, what Jesus has done on the cross is not only has he paid the penalty for our failures, but he has actually gifted us his righteousness and his spirit so that now we who were cowards and faithless and detestable and would-be murderers and sexually immoral and we're idolaters and we lie, right? We who were that, we have now been made into something new. It doesn't mean we're perfect yet, but this work is happening. We are the bride that's being prepared. And so if, you're not, if you haven't trusted in Christ, let me just encourage you this morning that God's grace is available to you right now, today. Repent of your sins. Turn to him in faith. He died for your sins and rose from the dead. And maybe today's the day when you join the bride and God starts making you ready for this day. The second aspect of this warning, and maybe this is the more prominent part of it, is for Christians who are compromising. And man, we've hit this almost every week in Revelation, but it's still an issue even here as we look forward to the new creation. The warning is there. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus but you are a coward with your faith or you're not holding to your faith when you're in a group of unbelievers, you need to ask the question. Or if you claim to be a follower of Jesus and you're involved in detestable behavior, you need to ask the question. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but but hate and bitterness is a huge part of your life, you need to ask the question. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but you continue to pursue sexual immorality or idolatry, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus and deception and manipulation is a regular part of your life, you need to ask the question, am I actually a Christian? Because if you're okay living that kind of life, that double life, John says, you're not getting in. He's not saying you have to be perfect to get in. He's saying the only people that are getting in are people who are actually followers of Jesus, whose names are in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. And if you're okay pursuing sin at the same time that you say you're pursuing Jesus, that's something, it's just not Christianity. It's the deception of the beast. It's a satanic attempt to make you think you're going to heaven, make you think you're headed to the new creation when you're really not. And it can be scary, right? Because as I'm reading these, these, these descriptions, I know we've all struggled with some of these areas, Okay? But the difference is, how do I respond when I fail? That's the difference. Am I someone who confesses my sin, who looks to Christ for help, 
who asks for help from the church, who seeks to follow the Spirit and to grow in holiness, right? Is that my calling? And I, and I, and I mourn my sin, but I rejoice in the cross, and I move forward in faith, right? I fail, I, I fall over, I get up, I dust myself off, and we go, right? There's your, that's a Christian, right? The concern John has is for those who claim to follow Jesus, but their sin doesn't bother them. It's not a problem. Heaven, our eternal home, the new creation, right? Heaven on earth, it's for people who used to be cowards and faithless, who used to be murderers and sexually immoral, who used to be idolaters and liars, but we've been rescued by Jesus. The new creation calls for new resolve to persevere. It's so funny, thinking about our eternal home, at the end of the day, it still boils down to, am I following Jesus today? Am I, am I living by faith today? So you need to ask the question, will you press on? You might probe and just ask, what is preventing me from persevering? Like, where am I, where am I getting caught up? Is it love of money? Is it you know, pursuit of sex? Is it entertainment, distraction? Is it you know, work stuff, family, whatever? Just ask the question, what's, what's tripping me up? What's causing me the problem? Because there's no way to do it. There's no, there's no other way to say it than this is a long road trip that we're on. But man, we know what's coming. There's an old hymn from the 12th century by Peter Abelard. He said it very well, and I think it really helps us just think about how we actually apply this text. And it's based on this text. He says, Now in the meanwhile, with hearts raised on high, we for that country must yearn and must sigh. When we talk about the new creation, I hope that your heart kind of reaches for that. We yearn for it and we sigh. Oh, it'll be nice. It'll be nice to be there. Seeking Jerusalem, dear native land, through our long exile on Babylon's strand. We got to keep an eye on the new Jerusalem because in the meantime, we've got a long exile here in Babylon. And our calling is to put Christ first today as we look forward to what is coming tomorrow. It will be glorious. In fact, it's so glorious we get a whole other section where he dives in in more detail to describe the new Jerusalem. But in the meantime, let's just remember that the the new creation calls for new resolve in our hearts to persevere by faith. And let's pray together now and just ask God to help us do just that. Lord, again, we thank you this morning for the gift of your word. And we pray that you would help us to persevere by faith. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful picture of the new creation. We thank you that you are making all things new, that your words are faithful and true. Lord, we thank you that you are the Alpha and Omega. You're sovereign over all of time. And Lord, we thank you that you are doing this work where you will bring heaven to earth. You will dwell with us as your people And we will be satisfied by you forever. Lord, as we look forward to that that peace and that prosperity, Lord, as we look forward to no chaos, no evil, as we look forward to no suffering, Lord, we recognize that there is plenty of that right now. And so we ask for your help as we struggle on this road. And some days we are tempted to give in and sometimes we fail, Lord, but we ask that you would help us to confess our sin, to look again to the cross 
and to be confident moving forward in faith. Lord, we thank you that you are doing a work in making your bride ready for this day. Lord, I pray that you would help us to grow in holiness. And I pray especially as I'm sure, Lord, we know specific areas that we're struggling to be holy. And I pray that you would convict us of your sin by your spirit. You would lead us in the truth. Lord, I do pray for those who haven't trusted you. And I pray that you would convict them of their sin. Show them their need for a savior and show them the goodness of what you have gifted us in Christ. Lord, we ask that as your church, we would be beautiful. That we would live distinctly holy lives. That you would be glorified by how we talk, how we think, how we act. And Lord, especially how we persevere in the meantime. We ask for your wisdom and your provision to help us in that. And we pray these things, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.